Now, obviously, that happens on a daily level for me, making making a property work and making sure that I'm giving clients the top 1% of properties, doing the job that I've been hired to do. But it's also about making sure that I'm, you know, further bettering myself because the more that I do it, the better I become. The The next property that I then purchase for myself and my family is uh, a better informed choice because of it. Uh, so it's kind of, it's a real culmination of factors. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Dot Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Tamara Wilcox. Tamara, how are you today? I'm good, Goose. I'm good. Thank you for asking. How are you? I am effervescent. I'm a little colder than normal because I'm actually in uh, uh, Victoria and not Bali. So there's a big difference between Victoria and Bali. Uh, and it's not just the, uh, the, the number of palm trees per square kilometer. It's um it's definitely a lot colder down here, but I'm actually enjoying it. It's been um it's good. Yeah. It's nice nice to be back in the hood. Good to rug up instead of sweat. No, I had to choose. I'd choose to sweat. Uh, I would choose. My preference would be like a lot of people romanticize the uh the cold day, warm house type thing. I'm just like, if I have to put trousers on, that's a sign to me that I'm in the wrong place. That's a fair call. Fair call. Anyway, we're not here to talk about my legs. We're here to talk about you. We're here to talk about Basically, how the hell do you tell a good property from a bad one? Because you are, in fact, a property one of our property analysts yes. at Dashdot. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to dig into what a property analyst is, what do they do, what do you do? How would you describe it to someone who doesn't know what a property analyst is? Because a lot of people don't know what a property analyst does because it's not really so – I don't even know any other businesses that have property analysts except for like Blackstone and these kind of like multi-billion dollar organizations. They have property analysts, but Dashdot's got property analysts. So I want to dig into that, and then I actually want to find out a bit about your background, and then we're going to dig into some other actionable insights for the listener. So what the hell is a property analyst? A property analyst does a lot of heavy lifting before a property even gets in front of a client. So we have an entire team dedicated to going through a myriad of properties every single day. We layer our criteria, our very strict criteria, I might add, that you know ensure that we get the top 1% of properties all around Australia for our clients. And we ensure, you know, very surface level things like, is it in a flood-free zone? Is there public housing surrounding the area? What kind of, you know, school district is it in? Just, uh, you know, really intrinsic sort of stuff. But then we go to heavier layers that will, you know, ensure that when we're pushing the, the property forward to clients, we know that it's going to perform really well for them and do exactly what they want, which is why they come to us. So Love that. Love that. Yeah, because it's interesting, right? Because the, the pathway of progress for a property is pretty interesting, right? So the property exists either on market or off market, but it exists in a, in a, with an opportunity for a purchase. Then goes through the, the analyst team. And I think last I checked, we're analyzing roughly 1,000 properties a week uh, across the team. Might be a little more than that these days. That, that, look at 1,000 properties a week. It's got to pass a really diligent set of criteria only if it passes that criteria and passes that level of due diligence through, through, the, through the analyst team, only then does it go to the acquisition manager. So it doesn't even go directly to a client, it goes to the acquisition manager, who then again goes through it, tries to pick it apart, see if they can find any holes in it as well. So you've got the second layer in there as well before it even goes to a client. So that's why you know we might look at a thousand properties a week and then you know we might buy, geez, I don't know, 15 or 20 properties a week out of a thousand that we might look at. So it's a very fractional percentage that are actually making it through because of all of those criteria. 
I want to get into some of those criteria and I want to get into you know how what you look for when you look for a good property but I want to go back a little step first what's your background like how did you get how did you end up here what's your exposure when did you first get an interest in real estate well, my mum was actually a real estate agent. So she, at a later age, became a, a real estate trainee. So I was 12 at the time and uh, I would walk to her office. And so I was surrounded by it from a very young age and I essentially became her PA. You know, and this is back in the day when um, it was all newspaper advertising. You know, you had property cards out the window and it literally was walk through traffic, none of this internet sort of stuff. It was really only just sort of foraying there. So I had real exposure to it from there and I was dressed as the LJ Hooker Bear more times than I could even count at, at countless uh, charities and, and functions and auctions and all those sorts of things. So it it just became just part of my sphere. I then went on to university and moved out of home and, and tried a few other things and my mum just kept saying to me because we're a very similar personality and she just kept saying, I think you should try real estate, I think you should try real estate. So here we go. So I put myself out there and, and actually at the time there wasn't any sort of job offerings going. So I wrote up my CV as if I was a house being sold and I hand delivered it to about 20 offices and got five job offers job offers um, that week. So it, I guess from that, my, my first trying to put myself out there, it really became a, hey, this is, this is quite interesting and, and, and maybe I am the right type of person for it. So uh, went on to, to be in sales for a number of years, but then I had small children and it just didn't work. So for me, stepping away from real estate and having a more hands-on approach and being able to stay with them was something that I wanted to do, but it left a hole, it left a gap. And there was a passion that, you know, was happening behind the scenes. And, and my wife and I were looking at in, um, investing and we were looking at renovator courses and we did a couple of little flips and things along the side, but it just, it just didn't fill the gap as much as needed. So, you know, I went looking like many of our listeners here for advice and, and a, and a, and a path to look at investing. And I found yourself. So. I um I came to Dash Dot and 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 the role much like many of the the team as a you know a potential client and an investor and just got you know so enthralled by what you did and how you're trying to change the way that Australia invests that it it was a natural progression of hey I actually really want to be a part of this as well as a client going through going through the process so yeah it's so, it's so funny isn't it like because. You know, from the in from the inside, we have a perspective on dash type that most people wouldn't have, which isn't which is normal and natural. But I think we've got. Geez, I don't even know how big the team is anymore. Actually, we've sort of we keep seem to seem to keep growing, but the amount of team members that have come through the process of either being a client or first starting to explore dash type with the view to becoming a client, then going as going through the process, actually turning around and going, actually, can I get a job? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like. Is pretty wild, you know, like to have that many people who are running towards an organization in an environment where, you know, I talk to business owners all the time and people can't find team members. It's, there's like, it's hard to find good team. And like, we just have this tremendous amount of people that are running towards the mission that we've got to transform the way Australia invests, which is pretty awesome. So where did you grow up? Because I'm interested, I, I got really, I was really into the story there of you spending time with your mom and she was really into it and all, she was a real estate agent. Where was that? Like whereabouts in Australia? Sunshine Coast. So I'm still on the Sunshine Coast. I I um I was born in Canberra, but moved out of there, much like you. 
don't like the cold. So uh, we, we left Canberra, but yes, yeah, Sunshine Coast is predominantly where that all uh, took place, and I still uh, I still live here now, which is it's it's really phenomenal. It's a phenomenal real estate sphere, and certainly through COVID, and that's you know I was still an agent through that it was really interesting. But yeah, gee, it's a beautiful place to live. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a great part of the world, absolutely stunning part of the world. That's awesome. Okay, so how has your experience? on the sales side or that, you know, your lifetime exposure to real estate effectively, but how, what, what, what have you taken from the sales side now that you're on the buy side, but more specifically what you're looking at is you're only analyzing the deals, which is a very big, diff- it's a very different role from being a sales agent because the primary function of a sales agent is get listings, market properties. But now what you're doing is you're just focusing on, is this even a good property or not, right? So it's even not, it's not actually really stitched to should we buy it? Should we sell it? It's just like, is this good or not? What transferable skills have you had come over from from sales? Or how have you seen those two roles support each other? I think, uh, like anything, the more you do something, the the more you can create a, a path of least resistance. So, just generally, exposure to the industry, exposure to housing, exposure to selling properties, reading through building and pest reports, identifying common issues that you'll you'll find in homes opposed to really serious structural uh, considerable problems that you're you know you want to walk away from so there's a there's an exposure and experience sort of thing that comes into it I think the passion the underlying passion plays a huge part as well because as you said we analyze you know as a team over a thousand properties a week uh, you know, sometimes that can be redundant. It's you know, you you at the end of the day, you're a, you're a data analyst. We're just throwing in property as the product. So you need to have a, a passionate sort of scaffold to ensure that what you're doing is taking you through the day and helping you make all the right decisions and all the right decisions, not only for what you're doing as a as a career, but as you know, clients and things like that. So just you know, minor things like identifying. Um, we had an issue the other day with a with a retaining wall, you know, and and identifying from my own personal experience, my own personal building experience as well with some of my homes that this retaining wall wasn't even built, you know, right from the outset. It had the wrong materials, all these sorts of things. So that's a very easy way, and it was actually brought to us from another analyst to say, hey what's everyone's opinion on this? And it was a really quick, easy, you know, resource that you can switch on in your head and say, I know that's not right, move on. You know, we don't need to waste time on these on these really obvious things that come from time, experience, exposure. It's pretty cool that um, that came from another analyst. How many properties do you reckon you look at a week? At the moment, definitely about 20, 20 properties a day. So yeah, 100 properties a week. And that's a mix of off-market and on-market properties. Yeah, nice. And so how much does having a whole team of analysts, how does that support it? Because you can't be expected to know everything, right? So how often are the analysts collaborating together to look at the deals to, to make sure it's passing master? How does, how does that work? So twice a day we meet. We, we have a meeting in the morning and we go through what properties we're looking at presenting. If we've got any questions, concerns, queries, and we all have like a cross-collaboration there. And then our, our acquisition managers actually join us on that as well. So again, there's a cross-team, like a multidiscipl- multidisciplinary collaboration that happens. And then again, we meet later in the day because obviously we then, we go off, we assess further properties throughout the day. So we want to ensure that at all times we're, we're not operating in a silo and that we're making sure that if we have questions, queries, concerns, Someone else is there to back us up, or you know, or to lend their advice because there's you know certain areas that at us as analysts work in that we just have a bit more comfortability with. 
So I might I might bring up a property that's, you know, and I've never purchased there before. So my general perception of the area can be very different to one of the other team members. So it's really easy. And then we, we you know, have an internal messaging system. So it's really quick to get an answer on something as well. So it's a, it's essentially an all-day collaboration to ensure that what we're doing is for the greater good and the greater team and, you know, making sure that no one has to rely solely on their own experience because, when you're surrounded by smarter people, more experienced people, and just people in general that want to push you all forward, that you know that helps everyone. It's um, you know you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, so that was actually it's really interesting, right? Because I want to relate this back to like uh, an investor, right? Because you are, in effect, you're an investor and a real estate professional. You've been doing, you've been in property your whole life on both sides of it. You've done flips, you've invested in properties, you've been a sales agent, you've dressed up as the LJ Hooker Bear. The whole kit and caboodle. So I think it'd be very easy to uh, ascribe that to you that you've got like a lot of experience and therefore you should you, you know property. But with that hat on, like now that you can see the benefit of kind of being in a team of analysts, like how is that kind of showing you? Like, would you be able to do this on your own? Basically, is kind of what I'm getting to. Even with even with your experience, based on what you can now see, what's the likelihood that you would be able to get to the same levels of success? if you were to just do this solo versus having the right team around you? Because I think even in the context that you're talking about, having the team around you, the other team of analysts around you, can be very similar to an investor going, okay, well, what team have they got around them? Have they got the right finance experts? Have they got the right property experts? So it's kind of what I want to tease out here is team versus solo, even if you're an experienced property person. I think it really comes down to the fact that people are so time poor these days as well. So to rifle through the information that is out there, which is good and bad information, and, it, and it's from it's right from when you're looking at realestate.com, it's then you're reading articles about property booms or property crashes. It's, it's going to open homes on the weekend or looking at properties in a completely different area because you think that area is where you want to purchase. It all takes time. And we're outsourcing so much of our lives anyway that decision as big as investing and putting your, you know, really hard-earned dollars into something, it can't be an off-the-cuff whim decision. And if you don't have the time, you need the people. And those people can either be in your your social sphere um, or they can be professionals that you can engage. Because similarly in your social sphere, if you are not surrounded by people that are like-minded or are going to continue to drip-feed negative impact or negative um, vibes, you're not going to progress yourself or you're not going to have those conversations that are really integral to pushing yourself forward. So I think that's that's really, really important to ensure that one, you've got time to do it. You've got the right people around you if you don't have time. You outsource it because you're right. If you know, if I was not in this uh, this career that I'm in at the moment and and the passionate sort of constantly checking realestate.com and, you know, having all those alerts and things, if I wasn't in that, you know, what could take one month or two months to do could take me two years because there's so much analysis paralysis that happens when you're looking at property and looking at making big life choices and big purchases as well. Love it. So the analysis paralysis thing is really interesting because you actually do the analysis side all day, every day. So most people get stuck when they start analyzing things, they get stuck. They start analyzing, they start overthinking. You're looking at 20 properties a day. You're analyzing 20 properties a day, 100 properties a week. Detailed analysis too. I mean, there's like dozens and dozens of different things that we need to they need to pass in order to be able to even get through. So this isn't a, isn't a quick glance. 
So the first question is, how do you avoid falling into analysis paralysis yourself? Like, how do you do that? Is it just a forcing function of the fact that you've got binary yes, no, this, that, and the other? Like, is it just as simple as like, it either passes or it doesn't pass, therefore you get past it. The secondary question I've got to this is, how do you maintain motivation? Like, you're you're in there every day, just like punching away, like property, 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 property. How do you stay motivated and how do you stay focused? So how do you avoid the the paralysis part of the analysis paralysis? And then how do you stay motivated and focused? I think a really important part of it is, yes, we do have all of those criteria and some of them are blanket black and white. Some of them are grey. Some of them we take to the team. Some of them we we approve and then it'll go to the acquisition manager and the acquisition manager won't approve. And often because we're not client-facing, we don't know the clients. Obviously, we have a detailed sort of information about them. We... We don't have that that personal connection though. So we can think that something is going to fit for someone and then it can get rejected from from other people. And similarly in the in the analyst team as well, like, you know, for instance, someone might think that X is fine and, you know, it it's not for you know, from someone else's perspective. So we just have to continue to you, you continue to navigate and push through those boundaries and where there is a question mark or a grey area, we go back to the team. You might leave it, you know, you for yourself if you might leave for 10, 15 minutes, come back at it with fresh eyes. You know, sometimes I've done that in the morning as well. I work, you know, I work really, really well fresh in the morning. That is when I'm at my absolute peak. And I I have to do that because I have young children. So I'll be up at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And with that fresh brain, I can I can do things that was taking me an hour to do the, the day before. So it's about knowing where your limits are. If there's not a time constraint on one particular thing, leave it, move on, go to the next thing and come back. You know, and I think that's probably fair to say in everyday life. If you're not productive at something, leave it, move on, come back to it for when you've got the energy and the, you know, the the bandwidth to do that. So your, your secondary sort of question there is staying motivated comes from the fact that one, I've got an interest in it. You know, anything in life, you can't do it if you don't have a passion and an interest because at the end of the day, your your brain's elsewhere and you're thinking about something else. So that's, you know, part of everything that we're doing and why, you know, I gravitated towards Dashdot is because you want to live this life of freedom, choice and abundance like you always talk about. And I want that for my kids. So there's a real underlying force and a, and a drive to make things work. Now, obviously, that happens on a daily level for me, making making a property work and making sure that I'm giving clients the top 1% of properties, doing the job that I've been hired to do. But it's also about making sure that I'm, you know, further bettering myself because the more that I do it, the better I become. The The next property that I then purchase for myself and my family is uh, a better informed choice because of it. Uh, so it's kind of, it's a real culmination of factors that means at the end of the day, I know what the goal is and I know what the goal is in 10 years and in 20 years. So I have to keep those blinkers on at certain times to make sure and remind myself, this is the goal. This is, you know, number one, my goal in the next 10 minutes is see if this property is going to work. Number two, at, at the end of this, um, you know, midday, I need to know what properties I'm presenting today. At the end of the day, do I have to go back and look at any sort of inspection reports and things like that? There's a, there's a, a checklist and a priority list that has to happen as part of a larger story that's going on in your head as a person, as an investor, and as you know, someone who's working at Dashdot. Yeah, love it, love it. Okay, cool. So all that being said, help me understand, and let's get into some t- kind of tactical stuff, right? What are some of the common issues 
that a self-driven investor might not uh, see or that might be omitted from, you know, a listing or something like that? Like, how do you start to see through to the stuff that other people won't? What are some of the common things? A lot of initial investment, people think that they need to invest where they live. That's probably, it's not the worst choice in the world. But the problem is that you will have your own, you will have your own bias against areas, against, you know, suburbs, against what type of home and all of those sorts of things. Like me, for me personally, I do not like Queenslander homes. I, I think they are beautiful, but I will never buy one. Laying your own personal bias against it is, is probably not the best thing to do. Getting out of your comfort zone, moving to looking at somewhere three, 400 kilometers away. Okay. So you're searching realestate.com and you're looking at all these properties and you're thinking, geez, this is a really good bargain because it might be half the price that you'd pay in your area. So then you're looking at what kind of rent it might get and all these sorts of things. But then you might not realize that that particular area has a high prevalence of the rooms rusting out. If it's emitted from the realestate.com, if there's no drone shots, which let's face it, most, you know, most places have drone shots these days, but if there's no drone shot of a property and you don't have an intimate knowledge of the area, you're not going to know that there's a potential, but there's a, you know, rusted out roof. There's $20,000 that could be, you know, a really, really huge problem for you down the track. Of course, you'd be, you know, looking at building a pest and things like that, but you've got opportunity costs where you're losing time, then you're losing money on, you know, prorated conveyancing fees, you're losing on those inspection costs. So it's about finding the intimate details that come with the region, that come with a particular type of home, because all over Australia, every you know, every place that we buy in, the homes are immensely different. So knowing the, the structural integrity of each type of property is a real myriad as well. So someone who's just sitting in their lounge room at 8 o'clock at night scrolling after the kids have gone to bed, it's going to take you decades to, to get all that information, but it doesn't mean that you can't seek it out. You know, and the more you look and the more you look at these, you know, you will will find little things that you start to notice in particular areas. So your your own analysis over time will start to become more integral so that you know what to look out for and and what's, you know, potentially being emitted from realestate.com listings and all those sorts of things. Because at the end of the day, an agent's trying to sell a property, they're trying to sell it to whoever's going to give them the best price, best conditions. But it doesn't mean that there's not going to be issues along the way. So it's about mitigating that risk from the outset, which can only sort of, you know, take place by doing the hard yards. And like I do the hard yards all day, every day, as you said, looking at that many properties. So so, so where does it start? I wanna, I'm going to, this is going to lead to a question where I'm going to ask you the top five things that you look for when you first start looking at a property, right? But before you even look at a property, where does it start? How does the tech get involved, by the way? Like what's your exposure to Goldie and some of the tech that we use? How does that then guide the process? Does it start with locations? Like talk to me about how you Talk to me about how that kind of comes down through to the process where you start then looking at the detail. And then the follow-up question is going to be, what are the top five things you start to look for? So Goldie has been built so specifically that a lot of the analysis actually happens before we even log in, right? So we've already identified so many of the growth driver factors that happen in the areas that we purchase in. And that will be due to traditional real estate information like obviously the, the location, um, what sort of intrinsic factors like schools and all those sorts of things that are around. And then you've got, we also then have really high insight data as to where we're going with these properties. Like where is it going to grow to? What kind of rent predictions do we have? So 
although we can see, you know, a lot of properties at the outset might be, you know, they might have had a tenant in there for two years and it's sitting on an undermarket rent and things like that. Within a couple of seconds, we can have a look at what sort of rent predictions we've got and what growth predictions we've got to assess whether there is possibility to take it further or if it's, you know, if it's flatlining. So, Number one, that is the that is the base layer of everything that we do. So you know, ninety percent of that is done by Goldie, and it's you know the the huge investment and what sets us apart. Then I take it you know a step further, and I might look at what projects are happening in the area. So you know, there are if we're buying in regional areas versus sort of you know more metro areas, well, they're going to have completely different extrinsic factors that will drive growth, cash flow, etc. And, you know, again, we have all of that data right there in front of us to then layer on as a, as a, as a top tier, even for a particular client, like, you know, someone who might be really restricted with their borrowing, they're with a first tier, really conservative lender. They have not a lot of cash to throw at the property every, every year to carry the, the moving parts of it. They may not be suited for a particular area because it might be too um, heavy on, you know, a, a particular employment sector. So we know that, you know, for a particular client, it might work for, for A, but it's not going to work for B. So that's what Goldie does for us. It gives us everything that we possibly need to A, check that the property's okay, B, that it's going to then to work for those particular clients. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. You know this, but a lot of people might not know this, but we've recently just got recognised as uh, one of Australia's most innovative companies, specifically for the price and rent forecasting models that we've built, which sit within Goldie and tell us where is the market going 15 months into the future. And what's cool about that is that we came number two in the property industry behind one company that's worth $3 billion and ahead of two other companies that were worth about $2.4 billion. So there's Dashdot squeezed in between these multi-billion dollar, you know, <laughs> you know massive companies specifically for the tech that we've developed to be able to do all the things you just said, to be able to go, okay, well, where is the market going? Not not just where is it now, but where is it going? Because that's the most important thing. You know, It's like, it's all great to know where it is, but like, where's it going? That's kind of the, the most important thing. So that's awesome. Goldie helps you to get down to the property level to then work out, okay, is this even the right place to be? Why would it be the right place to be? Why would it be the right place to be for this investor? Once you then get to that level and you start looking at houses, primarily looking at houses, what are the top five things that you look for? Like, what are the what are the quick tick box things at the top of the list that you go yes, no before you even start to go down into the the nitty gritty detail? What are the top five things that you start to look for? Well, straight away you need to look after your assets. So your risk mitigation, um, and in certainly in more specific areas than others, is is you know flood zones. Like, is this property in a insurance risk or a demolished risk category? If that's the case, you know, and and for specific areas that we purchase in. We know that that's higher than others. So that's the first thing that we look at. And that becomes a very easy process to either reject or, or move a, a property forward. So, you know, risk mitigation is one um, and flood would come under that umbrella. Previously, we did look at things like public housing as well, but we have, you know, done further studies to realise that some of our best performing properties have been in, you know, a, a high public housing a sort of percentage, but it depends on the actual property and it depends on the client's goals. That's not an umbrella situation that that we overlay for. Yeah, it's everyone. not. That's not a blanket statement that says no. just go and buy in high public housing areas. But it, what it not at it all. was a super interesting stu- super interesting study that was done. It was like in some cases this is how this can be a useful thing, and in other cases you might want to avoid this kind of a thing. But it's like it's more nuanced than that. But yeah, that's that's 
it's interesting because that used to be one of the key things we'd look at is like what what's the public housing percentage that was a very quite a binary like if it's above this or if it's below that it's a yes or a no sort of thing now now it's a okay well that's interesting but like what does it really mean <laughs> you know like what is it what is that actually telling us is, is a better way to think about that's right, because for you know, if you're looking for really heavy growth in a property that you're going to keep under your belt for 25, 30, 40 years, you want a wide range of potential purchases in the future. So that growth depends on what the property looks like and who it's surrounded by. So you know, for for a growth asset, definitely not. But if you just want some cash flow and you're injecting cash, those can be some of the best performing and best yielding properties. So again, we have to look back at the the specifics of what we're looking for. I want to bookend that as well because that can that can I think may, maybe it's not just cash flow because that's kind of an easy thing to deduce. Okay, buy you know to to kind of put this in uh, layman's terms. Oh yeah, buy in a shit area where the public housing is really high. Yeah, you'll get high yields because you know the property prices are shit and nobody wants to buy there and you're only going to get renters and it's a very kind of easy you know heuristic to to kind of develop, but it's actually a little. It's a little more nuanced than that because actually some of the best growth we've ever had has come out of areas where there's been slightly higher public housing percentages. And we're not talking about 90% public housing. We're talking about, you know, just above what we used to benchmark. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not, um, it's definitely not to say that, uh, okay, buy there if you want cash flow. Because as I say, these areas, if there are signs of transformation, which is the most important thing, it's like, how is the area evolving? Because you can take an area, in fact, the amount of times we've bought in areas where when we start buying there, people are like, oh my God, no one, this is a bloody, it's full of crackheads or something like that. And then lo and behold, 12 months to 24 months later, it's it's the hot spot that everyone wants to get into. It's like, yes, because transformation is coming. And so being able to identify where is that transformation going to come from? Because ju- just because an area has got high public housing, or when I say high public housing, again, we're not talking 70, 80, 90%, right? We're talking, you know, is it sort of, 50-ish or lower, is it whatever, right? So, in fact, maybe you can uh, highlight some of the percentages that we're looking for there that'd be interesting for the listener. But it's not about just looking at that number and going, okay, this means X. It's like, actually, what transformation is going to happen? Because if no transformation is going to happen, you probably aren't going to get much of anything, right? You might not get anything that you desire. And so, really, you're trying to look for where is the momentum. And if you can see momentum, if you can spot the underpriced asset, if you can see the thing the other people can't see, that's where you can make the biggest gains. That includes, you know, looking past and beyond some of these things. Because we used to have a rule, for example, no pools. That was a rule that we had. No pools. We don't buy houses with pools. Why? Oh, because, you know, it, they're, they're too much cost of maintenance, uh, too much hassle. There's insurance. It's a, yeah, nah, we don't buy properties with pools. But then we pressure tested that thinking and we discovered that, well, sometimes buying a property with a pool is actually a really good thing to do, particularly if it's, you're in a, in a warmer area. Because people want pools. So therefore, you the amount that you can charge for rent to the amount that it impact, impacts future growth, all these things, it can actually be a really, really good thing. And so understanding how these individual factors relate to individual specific areas is critically, critically important. Just for a point of reference on the public housing thing, what are some of the percentages we look for there? Like, what do you consider to be low? What do we consider to be high? Different for different areas because public housing in one LGA can be very different from public housing in another LGA. For instance, there are some areas in, in Western Australia that have been newly developed in the last sort of 10 to 15 years and the government has dictated that the public housing needs to be a one in 10 dwellings. So they spread the public housing throughout rather than having clusters which create more problems with those clusters of homes being together. So 
in stark contrast, if you have a public housing block of 20 units directly across from your row, across from the property that you're looking to purchase, that's going to significantly raise a few more flags than one in the street and one behind you and all those sorts of things. But as a general rule, anything between 5 and 10% public housing we, um, you know, that's where we start to look into it a bit further. And, and for every property, we can very quickly do a, a complete radius check. And we look to about the nearest sort of 200 metres. I did have a client the other day who had real concern with it. And it might just be from the unknown and not not having some um, some intimate knowledge of it. So this particular client asked us to then go and look at the entire suburb. And I said, well, look, that's probably not something that we can do because it, it will take up a lot of time and resource. But we didn't want to want to negate her fears and her concerns. So I did the nearest 1,000 properties. And it's it's those things that we have access to. Everyday investors have access to it as well. But it, again, comes back to time. So yeah, between 5 and 10% where, you know, we're sort of going, oh, okay, let's have a little bit of a further develop here. If we pull something up and it says 30%, like the initial sort of gut-wrenching feeling is this is not going to be for us. By the same token, some data can be out of date. So our best and closest resource is to then go and do a full radius check and see, look, you know, if it's three streets away and it's not neighbouring the property, it's probably not going to be a, a serious concern. If there's one across the road, two, do- two doors down, when we have our partners on the ground do our inspections, we will specifically ask them to write notes and if and where possible, take a, an external photo of the condition of that property because we are then just mitigating another layer, another layer of risk and another layer of concern that, you know, we want to get it ahead of it before the client asks the question. So again, a really multi-layered thing, but it's just the experience. And, you know, each of us will have experience in different areas and what public housing, for instance, means in those particular um, sectors. And we go back and we bounce it off each other. Okay. So I hijacked the top five things. So flood zone, are we going to call public housing number two? We were on that point for a while. So should we just should we mark that as number two or do you have you got something else? It probably comes under mitigating risk, but it also becomes part of the greater conversation of where you want your property to go and what it's going to do for you in your portfolio. So yeah, let's let's call it number two because it, it yeah, you know, property condition. Let's go to property condition because of course you want an asset that you're not going to have to throw a lot of money at. You want to know that if it's, you know, generally speaking, if it's an owner occupier that's selling the property, it's going to be in a condition and again, generally. Um, it's not a blanket rule, but generally it will be in a better condition than a tenant that's been in there for two years and may have let the lawns go and may have scuffed the walls a bit more and all these sorts of things. So your property condition has to play a huge part. And obviously what we do is when we take clients through this this process is that we give a benchmark of where we think they need to have sort of a maintenance and ingoing maintenance um, amount because, you know, investment properties by nature will have wear and tear. So your paint and your carpets needs to be turned over every five to 10 years. You know, unless you're buying incredibly quality products, you're in a high-end rental sort of situation where you have, you know, a different caliber of, of tenant. So making sure that the surface level is in good condition, but then looking at your structural things. Western Australia, we buy, you know, properties that are built on sand. You know, the soil composition is completely different. We've got another area where we know that there were significant storms in years gone by and we can identify purely by the the price of these properties whether we think that that had storm and hail damage or not. So we then go and check with the agent because that's a very quick mitigation of risk that can happen and it can either, you know, as I said, push the forward, push the property forward or, or reject it in the first instance because if they haven't done an insurance claim and got their roof fixed in the last couple of years, what's to say it's, you know, 
it's something that you need to do. So property condition definitely, you know, obviously because that's the um, that's a money factor. Yep, love it. So we've got flood zones, public housing percentages, property condition, so you know what you're walking into. What's number four? The LGA and generally what is available in the area, what is what are the upcoming projects, where can we see the expansion of the growth factors, the as you said, like the you know, what's happening in the area, what gentrification might happen to allow us to identify that it's gonna be the best place to put our clients. So like I was talking before, in the Goldie, uh, in Goldie, we can look at all the, the projects within a 100-kilometre radius that are going to happen in this area. So having that at our fingertips allows us to speak to that and say to the clients, look, this is why we believe it's going to grow, not just we think it's going to grow when we're, we're waving magic wand. And uh, you We know, hope it's going to grow. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know... People looking at rearward data don't have, you know, we have the upper hand because we're looking at forward data and we're looking at forward data because of these things. So what the LGA has and what the, you know, on on a street level, you know, like are you are you close to a school? You're in walking distance to a school. Me as a young mum, I would want to know that if I wanted to walk my kids to school and, ha- and ha- you know, have a great chat to them on the way, that's something that is going to pull at my heartstrings, which is going to, as an owner-occupier, would significantly change my perception on a property and I'm going to pay emotional money for it. So if they're in a really good school district, that's always going to change the game. So it's about knowing those simple things as well. When you've got universities and hospitals close by, you know, if you're if you're within a five minutes of a hospital, we all know doctors that are on call need to be in a in a position to drop everything and run. By by nature, they are higher socioeconomic. They have more money. They're going to have higher rents. All those sorts of things. So it's about knowing is this 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 and this going to make this in the middle much better for the overall goal. So would you say that number five is socioeconomic, Sam? Absolutely, and that's what we're looking into now. We're looking into layering extra factors into Goldie and into our process to push that growth perception and our growth forecasts even more. You know, are there new cafes opening in the area? Are there um, are there new uh, food markets being brought to the space which are getting millions of dollars spent on them to have a really fantastic social view for that particular area? So the social aspect it can be so. It can be such a, an iceberg, right? And we talk about public housing, and we talk about doctors being close to, to houses that are close to hospitals that will bring in higher higher rents and higher growth factors. It's about layering all of the little things that people want these days. Because as I said, we're time poor. We don't have enough time to spend with our families as as it is because we're you know chasing those things that are external factors to us. So. Making sure that we're looking at places that have a lot of amenities, universities, hospitals, having uh, you know great economic drivers and the socioeconomic drivers that are going to continue to make that a place that we want to stay in and continue to buy in. You know what's really interesting about what you've uh, listed there, which I find really fascinating. Most people would have been thinking that you're going to have a list of oh, I'd want to check the height of the ceilings or I'd want to check the the number of stumps correct or something like that. What's really interesting about that, and you're looking, we have a whole, looking at a thousand properties a week, right? And I can comfortably say that we're the best in the entire country at getting, the, getting poor performance out of real estate investments. I can comfortably say that. The five things you've listed 
only one of them was really related to the actual property, which was condition. Now, condition is a bit of a catch-all, right? So it was like condition of the property, right? So that does include all of the detail, like, you know, the handrails falling off, you know, did the doors open and close, the condition of the property, right? So, but the other four factors were all things like, where is it? And what's the environment around it? And how is the environment going to support the asset? You know, socioeconomic, location, LGA, kind of local economy projects and stuff, flood zone, public housing percentage. It's super interesting to me because what it points to, like a lot of people would have been, you know, what, what I love is that you didn't say, we check if it's got a blue door, right? Or, uh, oh, we only buy, you know, the first thing I want to know is, does it have a tin roof or a tile roof? You know, because a lot of people get bogged down on these really specific details that probably don't matter. Like they probably don't matter. It's like, is the property in a suitable condition for me to buy it? Now, the catch in there is suitable condition for me to buy it, right? That doesn't mean good or bad. For some people, the suitable condition must be no maintenance. Why? Because they might not be able to afford to do any maintenance, right? So they might they must be they might want to or need to buy a property that basically is a is turnkey. I can buy it and that's it. We're good to go. For somebody else, buying a property that needs a bit of work actually could be an opportunity. So it's like, is the property in a suitable condition for the buyer? Right? And that's very specific to the buyer's conditions. So it doesn't even need to be like, well, I mean, if it's got smashed windows, we wouldn't buy it because maybe that's a great opportunity for someone who's got the appetite for that kind of a thing. So it's like, is the condition of the property suitable for the purchaser? And outside of that, we're talking about where is it and how do these extraneous or extrinsic factors, you might, as you might call it, how, do they, how are they going to influence the performance of the property beyond that? I think that that is uh, super insightful, actually, for the, for the people listening to this as well. I'm mindful of time. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that before we look to wrap things up? I think for anyone who's just teetering on on whether it's something they'd like to do, it's it can be such an exciting roller coaster. And I say roller coaster because you're always going to have setbacks, and it, and it's like anything. But it's it's such an exciting area and sphere to get into because it can elevate every part of your life because you're looking for a future goal, because you're looking for a different life, because you're looking for a way to expand your own lifestyle, your knowledge, all of those sorts of things. So it's it's very much something that I would, as I said, I want my children to have different opportunities. And that's not to say that I wasn't in a, in a position and in a family that had the opportunity because I was. And I'm the youngest of eight children. I, you know, my, my parents had businesses all throughout my life. And then obviously the last one was my mum being a real estate agent. So it's not that I didn't have opportunity. But we can see that the world has clearly evolved, clearly changed, and it is changing at a dramatic pace. And therefore, getting into property investing, investing your own personal time, money, and your your bandwidth into it is a really good personal but financial investment as well. Because I think that if you surround yourself with like-minded people, people who want to go somewhere, property is significantly one of those areas because we all have a goal that's common and that common goal is to lead a better life have a better life and expand ourselves in our horizons love that it's a great place to edit tamara i've enjoyed this conversation as always every interaction with you is a joy i appreciate you taking the time to jump on here and share some insights thanks very much no worries Goose. have a great day thank you for having me